Welcome to the Lifestyle First podcast, discussing lifestyle medicine and making self-care as easy as one, two, three. One question, two research reviews, and three actionable health tips, all centered around the Lifestyle First method, your blueprint for the 10 key roots of optimal health and happiness. And now your host, lifestyle medicine physician and coach, Dr. Alka Patel. Hello and welcome to Season 5, Episode 9. Today we're continuing to take a deep dive with the incredible co-authors of the book A Prescription for Healthy Living. And so today the theme in the Lifestyle First Method we're exploring is e-emotions. And the one question we're discussing is what is the role of stress in health and disease? Two references to support today's discussion are the chapter in the Prescription for Healthy Living, Chapter 6, and also a publication in the journal Frontiers in Behavioral Neurosciences, looking at stress neurobiology. So today I have with me Dr. Thanasi Hasilis. Thanasi, he is a program director for the MSc in Psychiatry at Cardiff University School of Medicine. And he's also a senior lecturer leading on many aspects of the medical curriculum with actually a very specific research interest in OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. And this stems from his own experience, his own diagnosis with OCD at the age of 15. And I think it seems that it's that firsthand experience of this particular condition, which really has motivated him to focus his PhD and all his postdoctoral work on OCD, but even more broadly on stress disorders, which is what we're talking about today. So, Vanasi, welcome. So, um, the word stress, it is such a common word in our everyday vocabulary isn't it it's uh, I've actually heard the word in children as young and as eight talking about stress I think it's pervading through every generation so I think what I'd love you to do to start us off is actually maybe take us back take us back in time through all those generations to the ancestors of our ancestors and tell us where did stress begin yeah sure and firstly thank you for having me Elka uh, it's great to be here. Um, in, in terms of stress, um, it is important that we actually experience stress. So as you've alluded to, going back to our ancestors, uh, being able to anticipate um, a kind of a potentially dangerous situation or a predator in the environment um, was crucial that we were able to respond to that threat accordingly. And that's what the stress response actually does. Uh, it enables us to, to respond accordingly to that threat. And um, I suppose to put it in simple terms, uh, fight or flight. You you either flee from the uh, the impending danger or you decide to confront it head on. And and that played a crucial role in how our ancestors um, survived within those uh, sort of more harsher environments. Um, but that response, that stress response, is um, biologically interwoven into us as a species and and <laughs> all other animal species as well. Um, so. Our environment has changed considerably since then. We no longer have to flee from lions in the savannah, but uh, we, we still do have stresses in the environment. Um, and the stress response itself remains the same. Um, but uh, whilst the, the, the environment has adapted, our stress response hasn't really adapted with it. So we still respond to those uh, stresses or stimuli in the environment in the same way that our ancestors would. And what we tend to see now is that we see a lot more perhaps um, 
stress disorders uh, either being more prominent or we're just more aware of, of people who um, process that information in a different way and, and may respond to those stresses somewhat differently. So we see some individual differences now as well. Uh, and this is where we start to look at sort of the pathology of anxiety. So do you think it still plays a useful part then that our stress response does it still have a use in our current day living like you said we're no longer running away from lions but we're facing a lot more psychological threats aren't we whether we look at our you know digital connections the way we're connecting with with each other what is the actual benefit of that stress response to us still do we still need it or are we actually still evolving to to get away from that stress response yeah i think um so our ability to experience stress stress plays an adaptive role so it, it is still important that we're able to have that adrenaline rush when, when we're faced with um, danger you know uh, danger can take many different forms um, but as as you've suggested i think that the problem uh, that that we sort of see now in in especially the 21st century is that our environment has changed substantially. So we, we, we live in somewhat of a digital world as well. Uh, the world we live in has become rather fast paced. Uh, I think uh, COVID, the pandemic has slowed it down somewhat, um, but that's presented new challenges as well in, in terms of uh, the impact that it's had on people's stress levels. But the fast paced nature of, of, of our current environments and the, the, the sort of new technology that we have at our disposal has introduced new factors or variables if you like that have sort of complicated the picture somewhat and um yeah i, I think for, for for younger people i i i believe it's probably quite challenging to be a young person in 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 today's world where you know there's a lot of pressure on you to to succeed to um go to university for instance to also deal with the challenges of navigating uh, the social environments um and I think even being able to, to tolerate some of the, the abuse that you know, young people experience online, um, I think there are added variables that perhaps even our generation, when we're just looking back at you know, a couple of decades really, didn't, didn't really exist. And these are added stresses that uh, young people of today are facing. And perhaps we're, we're not all that equipped to help guide them through it. We're also new to this. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. We've got a you know new phenomenon in town, and that's the that's the digital world, and that's here to stay as well. So we're you know, certainly going to need an evolutionary response to that, aren't we? Really? Um, you mentioned anxiety. I mean, I'm certainly seeing levels of anxiety rising vertically. You know, partly related to the current situation uh, that we're in. But I think, despite that, what's what's your view? What's your experience? Do you think we're more anxious as a nation, as a globe now than ever before, partly related to some of those contributory factors you've described, or are we just more aware and talking about it more? What do you think is actually going on? I, th I think it's probably a bit of both. I think the, the stigma around mental health uh, has started to, to um, break as such. I think people are starting to break down those walls and we're starting to talk more about, you know, things like anxiety, depression, um, even things like psychosis, eating disorders, all this is really positive. I think there was such a massive, you know, prominent stigma. People were afraid to speak about these things, afraid of being judged in the past. Uh, and that's something that this younger generation are doing quite well. I think that they're much more able to express when, um, you know, they're low, they're anxious. Again, this is a generalization, but I think they're doing it better than uh, previous generations did. Um, but I think also, you know, as you've said, 
especially in, in the Western world, I think the, 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 the amount of stresses that are out there to succeed, to, to, to survive, perhaps survival has a, a different meaning in today's world than it did um, 10,000 years ago. Um, but to survive and thrive uh, is, is somewhat scary and challenging for a young person today. And I, I think it's a, it's, it's a bit of both. I think we're talking more about uh, our experiences, but also the, 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 the way that uh, the environment has sort of been shaped around young people today does, does actually contribute to perhaps certain added stresses that maybe weren't necessarily anticipated. So maybe a bit more of a challenging question then. What do you think about diagnostic labels? So we do, you know, we are talking much more about anxiety, depression, OCD, panic attacks, etc. And uh, suddenly we're arming people with a diagnosis, with a label. Do you think that's helpful for recovery? Or do you think that almost hampers uh, the ability to adapt and, and manage? Yeah, I think this is this is a really big question and I'm going to try to answer it without opening Pandora's box. <laughs> I think, I think yeah, at times labels and diagnostic criteria aren't necessarily all that help. I think that they're, they're more of a guide than something that should be taken religiously, religiously too prescriptive in nature. I think what's important to consider, uh, I suppose, specifically in relation to anxiety, is when those stress levels are surpassing a particular threshold when we're looking at perhaps when anxiety is no longer working for us as we've said stress is important but when it no longer works for us and starts working against us then we're starting to look at perhaps um you know an abnormal experience of anxiety uh and that's when we're starting to to look at pigeonholing people so okay we know that their anxiety is beyond what we consider normal it's um it's impairing their functioning uh and as such you know what, what kind of anxiety are we talking about is it generalized anxiety disorder is it uh, perhaps ptsd agoraphobia panic um and even there that's that's when we're looking at perhaps the lines uh, or the borders the boundaries between each of these blurring somewhat so we know for instance people with panic disorder uh one third of them are likely to also have or go on to uh, receive a diagnosis of agoraphobia. So there's a significant overlap, for example, between those two conditions. Um, OCD uh, is an area where uh, sort of the, 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 the term OCD is somewhat of an umbrella term. You have many different subtypes of OCD as well. So you'll have um, those with more of a cleaning or contamination related OCD, those with checking, uh, those with what is referred to as pure O, pure obsessional. Um, that in itself is a bit misleading. So they still have that compulsive element, the ritualistic behaviors that they perform, but those are sort of more internal mental acts as opposed to external observable behaviors. Uh, so I, th I think it does get more complex the more we start to zoom in on these various conditions. But yeah, more broadly, I suppose when we're talking about pathological anxiety, it's when stress is no longer beneficial to us. It's actually starting to, yeah, to work against us in many ways. Is there something else going on physiologically then? Because I think we know we've got a fundamental understanding of the stress response and the mm -hmm. effect of sort of the, the cortisol and the adrenaline and, and when that kicks off and what happens next, uh, even in terms of sort of physical symptoms. But is there something else that happens when it tips into what isn't a helpful protective response? What's going on with anxiety where it actually starts to corrode life or OCD? Is there something different? 
Yeah, I think, you know, what we do see is that there is a, there's a genetic component to certain conditions, and, and that's true of, of anxiety as well. But we also know that the environment plays a, a crucial role. So certain perhaps early life stresses that individuals may be exposed to can have not only a real impact on how they process information, but those experiences can subsequently also have a real structural impact on the brain. And what we tend to see is that, you know, for instance, parts of the brain that are involved in threat detection, such as the amygdala and other parts of the brain start to change. And as such, when those parts of the brain start to change, the entire system, I suppose, that's, that's dependent on how that information is processed, changes with it. So we know that there are certain parts of the brain that subsequently activate um, another part of the brain, the hypothalamus, which is sort of the bridge between our central nervous system and the endocrine system. So stress is really interesting because the stress response itself is so in intimately interwoven into so many other different physiological responses, you know, the, the endocrine system, the, even the immunological. Um, and what we tend to see is that when, when those structural changes start to occur in the brain and, you know, those changes subsequently influence other parts of the brain that feed into other systems, what we tend to see is that there's dysregulation and perhaps excess uh, circulating levels of certain hormones, so cortisol, uh, even certain uh, uh, catecholamines, we see dysregulation in terms of that. And as such, we start to see that over time, the more individuals um, experience sort of this prolonged anxiety or exposed to these kind of stresses over an extended period of time, the more dysregulation we see, and as such, the the more disruption that we tend to see in these uh, circulating levels of cortisol or what have you. Yeah, because we're designed to oscillate, aren't we? We're not designed to be on a exactly. on level. And I think that's where we find ourselves, don't we, where we've got the stress response continuously activated. We run into, into trouble. And you've mentioned that sort of interlinking between the, the psychological per se and the physical. So what are those long-term risks, the effects, uh, more so on kind of physical health with, with the stress response being constantly activated? Yeah, I think, you know, as you've said, the, the, the mental and the physical are, are so um, interwoven that it's difficult to separate them. I think historically we've sort of seen the um, mind-body uh, analogy being taken as, you know, the mind is something separate from the body, but at least now with our better understanding of you know how the brain works and influences the rest of the body we can't really separate the one from the other um, and uh, we do see that uh, for instance when we're looking specifically at the stress response that not only has an impact on our mental well-being but as you've said physical as well so it, it could what we do see in people with uh, elevated um, levels of stress as a result of as you say being uh, under stress or having um, raised stress levels over an extended period of time they have uh, gastrointestinal um, perhaps issues, IBS, uh, headaches, muscle tension is common. Um, and in addition to that, what we also are seeing now in the literature, which is quite interesting, is that when it comes to the um, immunological side of things, uh, when individuals experience chronic levels of stress, um, we tend to see that that also has an impact on tumor detection. So the body is much better at detecting tumors earlier on if you know those stress levels aren't as raised over an extended period of time whereas in individuals with chronic anxiety um, chronic stresses that they're exposed to it, it does have an impact even on early tumor detection of the, the immune system and yeah various other conditions so your ability to recover from um, uh, even a, a respiratory illness uh, is um, a lot slower if you have higher levels of anxiety 
uh, wound healing. So the how, how quickly a, a wound heals, for instance, in people with stress is different to those with without high levels of stress and without low mood. So yeah, even even now in the current situation, I think what's challenging is you know trying to adapt to our new circumstances given the what we're faced with uh, pandemic as such um, and, and that presents new sets of, of challenges as well but um, remaining calm is also important because if you know we are to unfortunately contract the virus our ability to actually respond to that uh, in, in a calmer way will also to some degree influence how, how, how we recover really. No, completely hear you. I think you sort of highlighted there's the sort of acute response, the acute mm -hmm. uh, result of chronic stress in terms of just being able to fight infections and, and heal a cut um, yes. to the kind of much longer term effects on long term gut health and diabetes, cancers, heart yeah. disease, dementia, we know all of those are affected when you just switch on inflammation, which is again, a normal physiological process Absolutely. in the body, but you know, you stay chronically inflamed because of stress, that's when you start to run into, into the issues. You? So, um, exactly, and that, that's a really interesting point as well. We've got one of our students on the MSC Psychiatry actually looking specifically at the, the relationship between inflammation and um, uh, yeah, the, the, the brain-gut axis, so how this actually influences and, and certain cytokines are actually influencing that um, close link between the mental and the physical, which is really interesting. Yeah, no, I, well, I look forward to reading that because I do, you know, the more I read, I recognize that inflammation is probably the absolute core pathological mm. process that, uh, that occurs for so many things that we haven't yet even attributed to that simple single process. So yeah, look forward to, to reading that. Um, Thanasi, are you able to share a little bit about your own story of OCD? Yeah, um, sure. That, uh, I'm, I'm happy to speak about this as, as part of, you know, breaking down the, the stigma, uh, encouraging others to do it as well. Uh, so I was diagnosed at around the age of 15. Um, before that, I didn't really know uh, why I was experiencing certain things. So um, uh, my OCD was what they refer to as pure O. So I was having these really nasty, intrusive thoughts, and I had to perform sort of internal rituals, um, internal checks to neutralize those really aversive thoughts. And, and um, once I was able to perform those rituals, uh, there was a, a sort of a temporary period of relief um, but in essence, what really happens, and, and this is the same across the board, regardless of the type of OCD, mm -hmm. when you're performing those rituals, uh, what you're actually doing is you're just reinforcing that. So every time you're faced with another really nasty thought or even a, a difficult situation in life, you're going back to that same behavior of having to perform these, these rituals to sort of provide yourself with some relief. Um, the thing is, though, that uh, with OCD, we know that there's a neurobiological component. So there's a circuit in the brain that perhaps is, is misfiring uh, within parts of that circuit. Uh, so that, that leads to these really nasty thoughts, not only popping, to, you know, coming to mind because we all experience nasty thoughts. It's just the manner in which people with OCD respond to them, taking them perhaps we could say a lot more seriously and adding a lot more importance to them. So, you know, for instance, you could have a thought that um, a loved one would cross the road and get, get hit by a bus, but you could say, oh, you know, what are nasty thoughts? Um, and, and carry on with the rest of your day. Whereas someone with OCD feels that, you know, unless I do something, that will be the inevitable outcome of this thought. So there's sort of adding um, that extra importance and that extra, I suppose, um, uh, 
to, to put it in a different way, that thought has some kind of impact on the real world. And as such, if you don't intervene, that thought will somehow come to fruition. Uh, and that's that was my experience. I think um, I, I felt that I needed to perform certain rituals and the, the urge to do so was overwhelming because unless I did that, um, even though I knew it was irrational, there was this part of my brain telling me, unless you do that, or, you know, that loved one is going to get hit by a bus or something bad's going to happen to someone. Um, so you're forced to comply as such because it's so aversive, so unpleasant. Um, but the good news is that even though there isn't a cure for OCD, um, our evidence-based approaches are really effective. So there are certain medications, um, SSRI is really effective. Uh, there are talking therapies such as cognitive behavior therapy and exposure response prevention, very effective at breaking that cycle. So you no longer, you process that information differently and you no longer respond to it in the same way. Uh, and, you know, OCD is, is heterogeneous in nature, um, not only in terms of, you know, the various different types of OCD, but also you could have someone with mild OCD. So um, members of my family have milder OCD than me. I had a more moderate version. Um, whereas, you know, you have other people, people I've worked with who have severe OCD and, you know, uh, the, it's so severe that it actually impairs their functioning to, to the point that they can't leave their homes. Uh, and that requires sorts of more drastic intervention. Thank you for, for sharing those personal anecdotes. I think that's really help, going to be very helpful for the listeners to really you know, try to understand it a little bit better. Because we often think, we don't often connect the mind to the brain. We think the mind is something separate as well. I'm not quite sure where the mind sits. It sits in a different place for all people. But that's something you said there, which is about the brain misfiring. I think it's really helpful to know that there's a you know, different connection that you've got in your brain that is triggering this. It's not only your mind that is uh, that is triggered there's something sort of more going on um, as well and increase and interesting you mentioned about the checking i'm coming across this in a lot of doctors actually as well uh, the phenomenon of you know really wanting to take care of their patients and checking and checking and checking that they're getting absolutely everything right um, and you know that compulsion and that real necessity to do that is a very strong very overpowering feeling so um and that sits within that sort of broader concept of stress and anxiety doesn't it as well so um so yeah i think that's why you know given the current situation or experiencing high levels of stress because as you say um feeling that you're in control of a situation is really important so not only in terms of i suppose going back to the ocd analogy uh, unless I felt that I had exerted some control over a very, you know, nasty scenario that my brain had concocted, I, I felt more anxious. And, you know, when we're looking even at non-pathological anxiety or stress, if you feel, as you say with your colleagues, if you feel that you have more control over a situation by checking and making sure things are just right, you're sort of alleviating that uncertainty and that stress that comes with uncertainty. So feeling that you're in control of a situation and feeling that, you know, the outcome of a situation is predictable in some way, that, that plays a big role in, in, in alleviating anxiety. I think, you know, given the unpredictable nature or rather unpredictable nature of the current situation, that, that doesn't help stress levels either. Absolutely. And really, life is unpredictable as much as we uh, we want to predict every outcome. That is, you know, that is the force of life that we that we know. So uh, exactly. Yeah. And now here is your lifestyle first prescription, your three activating actions to take you from knowing to doing. Stress phenomena. What can we do to manage our stress? Have you got three things for us today? 
Yeah, I think, you know, what's helpful is we know that, um, for instance, exercise, whether that be mental exercise, keeping your mind active or physical exercise or preferably both, plays a crucial role in, in um, not only reducing levels of anxiety, but it's just good for us in general and how we age. So you've, you've mentioned dementia. So we know that people who, you know, um, use uh, their bodies and their, their minds more are more protected uh, as they age. Uh, whereas, you know, I suppose it comes back to that, um, that, uh, that phrase, use it or lose it. So unless you use it, you know, it's, you're not going to age in a way that you would like to age uh, physically and, and mentally. Uh, so keeping active is really, really important, especially now during lockdown. I think we're all, uh, since we're trapped perhaps at home, it's easy to spend a lot more time working or doing chores or doing things that we feel we have to do. Uh, and perhaps we overlook, you know, looking after ourselves. So taking some time out to exercise, um, you know, this could be in, in the comfort of your own home, um, keeping your mind active by doing things that aren't work related. So anything that you enjoy reading a book, doing a Sudoku, anything that, that, uh, that, that is enjoyable, enjoyable brain uh, exercise. Um, and, and also I suppose just taking a step back and, and as you say, accepting certain things, accepting that perhaps we don't always have control, not every situation is predictable and that acceptance can be quite powerful. Um, um, and yeah, just putting things in perspective. So as, as bad as things may appear to be or feel at any certain point in time, taking a step back and just looking at the, the larger picture can also be a quite a powerful exercise. It just comes back, I suppose, to what the ancient Greeks used to say, a, a healthy body and a healthy mind, or rather a healthy mind in a healthy body, is, is really important because yeah you can't really separate the two so just look after yourself and be kind to yourself yeah that is so spot on absolutely and in, as somebody said to me yesterday this is just for now this is not forever mm -hmm. and really kind of remembering that so thank exactly. you so much i think that was uh, incredibly insightful i've certainly learned a lot today so uh really appreciate your time today so i'm sure people listening are going to want to hear more from you or get in touch perhaps so what's the best way to to find out a bit more yeah so uh i in terms of social media i'm on twitter thanasi has uh and there's also our msc psychiatry um accounts on twitter where we share a lot of uh, uh this type of, of information and um other projects that our students are involved in and staff. Uh, so that's the MSc Psychiatry at Cardiff Uni. Uh, we also have an Instagram uh, page, which uh, my wife runs because I'm not on Instagram and I'm not as tech savvy as I like to think I am. Uh, <laughs> and there's also a, a Facebook account as well. So uh, we, we have a range of, of social media platforms that you can uh, find us on. I could also provide a, an email address. It's just hasulisa2 at cardiff.ac.uk uh, if anyone would like to get in touch. Amazing. I shall be following intently. Thank you so much uh, for being here today. Really enjoyed that. Thank you. Thank you Anka. And before I bring today's episode to a close, just a reminder, as always, that the doors to the Lifestyle First Academy are open with a course designed to help you discover, notice and activate who you are, what you want and where you are going so that you can create a happy, healthy lifestyle. And I would, of course, love you to subscribe to this channel. The links are just below. So just subscribe and share so that you too can help spread messages of health that matter. Which now leaves me, as always, to simply wish you a happy, healthy day. Thanks for joining us on the Lifestyle First podcast, making self-care as easy as one, two, three. Don't forget to subscribe and share 
and we'd love it if you'd be kind enough to leave a review. To learn more or to arrange a consultation, please visit www.dralkapatel.com. See you next time.